Welcome back, everyone. This is chapter 31, The Mouse in the Culvert. As Rainey composed a more optimistic letter to his former tutor, indeed, even as, in his mind, he wrote the words, and now our hopes really do lie with Kate, Kate was feeling less and less optimistic herself. Her problem wasn't finding Mr. Curtin's secret computer room. Her problem was not getting caught. At first, everything had gone fine. Kate had flitted through the shadows behind the dormitory and in no time had made her way down to the boulders behind the Institute Control Building, kicked open the secret entrance and darted inside the foyer. It was here that the problems began. The ceilings had no crawl space and the air vents were too small to accommodate her. She had no choice but to move about in the open and it was open in the passage as a quick peek from the foyer proved, open and bright as day. Not to mention, it was hardly a short passage at all. Lined with doorways, it stretched off into the distance, where it finally turned a corner. Why had Sticky said it was short? Then Kate remembered the boys had been blindfolded. They must have thought it was short, because they'd only gone a little way before Jackson had led them through a doorway and onto the tower steps. Any one of these near doorways might lead to the steps then. Should she try them all? As if in answer, about halfway down the passage, a door slid open and Jackson stepped out into the passage. Kate pulled back into the foyer and listened. No footsteps. She peeked out again. Jackson was leaning against the wall by the door, munching absently on a stick of licorice. He seemed relaxed settled, as if he intended to stay there a while. Kate smiled. She thought it pretty likely he was guarding the tower steps. Now she just needed to get past him. Pulling back out of view, Kate eased her slingshot from her bucket, snugged a marble into it, then peeked around the corner again. She waited a long minute, then another. Finally, the opportunity came. Jackson looked down to straighten his sash, muttering something to himself. It was now or never. Kate launched the marble down the passage. The marble shot over Jackson's head, struck the stone floor in the distance with a satisfying click, bounced off the far wall, skittered around the corner. Jackson spat out his licorice and barked, who's there? Not waiting for an answer, he ran down the passage and around the corner and Kate dashed to the door he'd been guarding. Next to it was a numeric keypad. She hadn't counted on that, but if Mr. Curtin hadn't changed the codes again, her fingers flew across the numbers. The door opened, Kate leaped inside. Only then did she realize she was in an elevator. An elevator, of course. How else could Mr. Curtin get up to the whispering gallery in his wheelchair? He must not let his messengers use it. He did like his secrets, didn't he? probably enjoyed the thought of the children laboring up all those steps, too. As the door slid closed, Kate saw the tower steps through an open doorway across the passage. Jackson had been guarding both entrances. There were only a few buttons inside the elevator. They were unlabeled, but it wasn't hard to guess that the top button would be for an entrance outside the whispering gallery, and the one below it, that would surely be the computer room. Kate stared longingly at the button. 
but of course she couldn't press it. She couldn't use the elevator. Jackson was sure to hear it. He was probably already coming back down the passage. And so Kate improvised. She emptied her bucket, flipped it over, and standing atop it on her tiptoes, unscrewed the maintenance panel above her. She'd never worked so quickly in her life. In no time, she'd tied her rope in place, gathered her bucket and things, and disappeared through the panel into the elevator shaft above. No sooner had Kate replaced the panel below her than the elevator door opened. Kate held perfectly still. She heard Jackson grunt. The door closed again. Kate flicked on her pen light. The elevator cables stretched high above her, disappearing into blackness. She took off her shoes and socks, slid the socks over her hands to protect them, then put her shoes back on. With her pen light clamped between her teeth, she started up, wasting no time. She had a very long, very difficult climb ahead of her. It was a very long, very difficult way to go, only to be disappointed. Despite the socks, the cable hurt her hands. The climb was exhausting. And when at last Kate came to a set of doors near the top, she found them impossible to pry open or peek through. Above them, another set of doors, which must open onto the passageway outside the whispering gallery, proved equally immovable. Then, sneaking past the winch and machinery at the top of the elevator shaft, if the elevator had started just then, she'd have been killed. Kate discovered that a vent cover she'd spotted was welded shut. The vent was too tiny to climb through anyway. She did manage to peer down through it, if only to make the following discouraging mental notes. In the foyer, two recruiters, very big and dangerous looking, both wearing shock watches. Behind them, thick metal door, three manual locks in addition to an electronic keypad. One of the locks, a combination. Air ducts, too small for Constance to fit through, even if greased. Ceiling, inaccessible. Windows, none. No windows, Kate thought, and no hope for entry. She couldn't even get to the room outside the computer room much less into the computer room itself. It was hard to resist a sigh. She'd had grand visions of sabotaging the Whisperer, destroying all its computers by herself, ripping out cables, crushing components, stealing mysterious gizmos that could not be replaced. Not only would she be regarded as a hero, she would prove once and for all that she could do everything alone, that she needed no one's help. But now she saw she could do no such thing. Not this time. Kate stiffened. In her disappointment, she had let her mind wander and only now became aware that one of the recruiters was peering into the darkness in her direction. McCraig, the recruiter said to his partner, do you see something odd behind the vent there? McCraig pulled out a flashlight. Nothing behind the vent. Probably a mouse. A talking mouse? That's not coming from the vent, you idiot. That's the executives coming up the steps. Got a new one taking the tour tonight, remember? Kate, who had pulled back just in time, also heard the voices. They were just on the other side of the wall. Part of your training, SQ was saying, his voice growing louder. 
After I show you the ropes up here, you and I meet with Mr. Curtin so he can explain some things to you. Yes, you've already said that, said a testy voice, Martina Crow. But why are you coming to the meeting? You've been an executive for almost a year now. Well, you probably haven't noticed, SQ said, but I'm a little slow on the pickup. Mr. Curtin sometimes has me sit in on these tutorials to refresh my memory about certain things. Kate heard a derisive snort, then Jackson's voice saying, Hold on, you two. She leaned and peeked through the vent again, but couldn't see him. The entrance from the tower steps was out of view. McCraig, she heard Jackson say to the recruiter. Everything fine up here? Nothing uh, unusual going on tonight? I'm telling you, Jackson, said SQ's voice. It was probably a mouse. We got mice too, said McCraig. Other than that, all's fine. Jackson takes his guard duty very seriously, SQ said knowingly. Hey, it's Mr. Curtin who wants security stepped up, Jackson snapped. You got a problem with Mr. Curtin, SQ? Of course not. I was just saying. Kate didn't hear the rest. She was already easing her way down the elevator shaft again. She needed to beat Jackson back down so she could slip out. And then, what was this about a meeting with Mr. Curtin? Maybe the night didn't have to be an entire loss. The trouble would be finding a way to eavesdrop on his office. Too risky going into the Institute Control Building. But maybe she could find another way. And so you see, Martina, Mr. Curtin said, rolling out from behind his desk. After the improvement, most people will be much happier. But not all, said SQ. Isn't that right, Mr. Curtin? Quite right, SQ. Unfortunately, there are some people whose natures incline them to be sad when others are happy. Martina was smiling. May I assume, she said in a sly tone, that these poor souls would not only be unhappy, which certainly is tragic enough, but might also cause trouble? Am I right that brain sweeping will not only help them feel better, it will make them more manageable? You understand perfectly, said Mr. Curtin with an approving look. And SQ, I believe that explanation should satisfy you as well. If the explanation had not satisfied SQ, it had nonetheless created in him the strong impression that he ought to be satisfied. And so he laughed and said, I see, yes, of course. Martina leaned forward in her chair. One thing I'm still unclear on, though, is how brain sweeping works. It doesn't actually erase the memories. Not at all, Mr. Curtin said. Anyone who knows anything about the human mind understands that it never truly forgets anything. To completely erase memories is impossible. What is possible, however, is hiding memories from their owners. To use my favorite comparison, we sweep the old memories under a mental rug, hence the word brain sweeping. And there they remain, hidden away, with no one the wiser. And everyone happier, SQ said. Yes, SQ said Mr. Curtin, with a significant look at Martina. She was a brand new executive, but already understood far more than SQ ever would. Yes, my friend, 
Everyone's happier. Isn't it amazing? SQ said to Martina. I get goosebumps every time I learn it. It is so much the same with fears, you know, Mr. Curtin said. SQ, do you believe you have it down now? Would you like to explain to Martina how the Whisperer deals with fears? Oh, yes, of course I would, said SQ, reddening. That is, I would, but, um... But you've forgotten, Mr. Curtin snapped, flashing a sneaky half-grin at Martina. Apparently, he took pleasure in toying with SQ, which no doubt explained why Mr. Curtin hadn't booted him off the island years ago. Forgotten? Oh, no! S.Q. cried in dismay. No, I wouldn't say I've forgotten. You know, nothing is ever truly forgotten. You said so yourself, sir. Ha ha, he coughed. <clears throat> it's just that, um, uh, you're so much more elegant than I am. I dare say that's true. Perhaps you also find me more eloquent than you. Very well, S.Q. I shall explain it, and you may nod along as always. S.Q. nodded. Mr. Curtin turned to Martina. You recall how your fears seem to disappear when you're seated in the Whisperer, do you not? Martina's expression sharpened with hunger. Absolutely, she breathed. S.Q. nodded. Of course you do. Again, the magic is in the messages. My Whisperer rewards your cooperation by sending extremely high-power messages that deny your fears. A simple procedure... Fears look just beneath the surface and are easy to detect. S.Q. nodded. So it's just a wonderful illusion, Martina said. That explains why the fears come back later. I've always wondered about that. When I'm in the Whisperer, they seem to have gone away forever. Mr. Curtin laughed. Sadly, no. The only way fears truly disappear is if you confront them. But who in the world wishes to confront his or her worst fears? Not me, Martina said. S.Q., already beginning to nod, checked himself and shook his head. Nobody does, said Mr. Curtin. And now we are on the brink of offering the same peaceful contentment on a much grander scale. After the improvement, you see, everyone's greatest fear shall be drowned out by a message much like the ones you receive in the Whisperer. It will be grand. I can't wait, S.Q. cried, unable to contain himself. To think that so many people will be so happy. Mr. Curtin chuckled. You don't have long to wait, S.Q. My modifications have gone much more quickly than I even hoped. I now fully expect the improvement to begin the day after tomorrow, perhaps even sooner. The day after tomorrow? Martina exclaimed. I had no idea. Yes, you're very lucky, Mr. Curtin said. You're the last executive promoted before the improvement. It's a proud tradition, Martina. Several generations of executives have come before you, many of whom were dispatched to the four corners of the world to prepare for the improvement. In fact, many have become important government officials. What will I be doing? Martina asked, her eyes shining with anticipation. You'll start by helping with the sweepers, said Mr. Curtin. You've been to the memory terminal, yes? SQ showed you the sweepers? We just came from there. They look exactly like the Whisperer. True, 
but they are much less powerful, said Mr. Curtin, and much less sophisticated. The Whisperer, Martina, is a sensitive, delicately balanced machine that requires my strict guidance for its proper function. Only my Whisperer can bring about the improvement. Here Mr. Curtin paused, his face adopting an expression of fond reverie. So the sweepers just bury memories, Martina said. Nothing fancy? Correct, said Mr. Curtin. They are much simpler tools than the whisperer, hardly more sophisticated than metal brooms. Otherwise, my executives would be unable to operate them. This time it was Martina who nodded, and S.Q. who did not. In fact, S.Q. now wore an unusually serious expression. Um, sir? S.Q. said timidly, raising his hand. A thought just occurred to me. Mr. Curtin raised his eyebrows. That's remarkable, S.Q. What is it? Shouldn't we be asking people's permission? I mean, if we're putting things in their heads, shouldn't we ask them first? Martina's jaw dropped with disbelief. But Mr. Curtin was long used to the workings of S.Q.'s mind. In fact, S.Q. had asked this question before, more than once, but had forgotten. With more amusement than impatience, Mr. Curtin answered, If we ask permission, S.Q., then it doesn't work. Do you want people to be happy, or don't you? Oh, I do! Then the answer is no. We should not be asking permission. Do you see? Relieved, S.Q. nodded. And so, Martina... Mr. Curtin concluded. You may now anticipate the improvement with pleasure. As I said, by the day after tomorrow, we... Mr. Curtin's attention shifted to the drain cover in his office floor. How odd. I thought I heard something in the drain. Maybe it's a mouse, S.Q. ventured. What's the drain for anyway? asked Martina. Would you like to tell her, S.Q.? said Mr. Curtin, still peering toward the saucer-sized grate. I suspect that's something you do remember, grisly details being the most memorable. Oh, yes, sir, replied S.Q., eager to prove his knowledge. He cleared his throat importantly. <clears throat> you see, Martina, back in the early days, when the Institute was being built and a colony of workers lived on the island, this room was used as the butchery. There was always a lot of blood, of course, gallons of it, and the butchers would wash it down that drain. The drain connects to a culvert, which carried everything off to the harbor. They say sharks used to gather in the waters there, drawn by the scent of blood, and workers would fling mice out for them to snap up. Here, Eskew's face brightened. He'd suddenly remembered something else, and it was rare that he remembered two different things in so short a time. You know what, Mr. Curtin? Jackson heard a mouse, too. Not half an hour ago. We're having a real problem with them lately. The real problem, said Mr. Curtin, is that we hear these mice, but never see them. Rolling to his desk, he took up a pot of hot water S.Q. had brought him for his tea. It may be that our mice have grown better at hiding. However, it occurs to me that although the drain pipe is mouse-sized, the culvert is human-sized and would provide a perfect hiding place for some bold eavesdropper who managed to find its entrance. Even as he spoke, 
he shot across the room and dumped the steaming contents of the pot down the drain. He waited, listening carefully, but not a sound reached him, save the gurgling of the hot water as it drained away. Hmm, perhaps it was a mouse after all, or the echo of Hobba traffic. Pipes do have strange acoustic effects. For a moment, he stared at the empty pot in his hand, somewhat lost in thought, then said, I do want my tea, however. SQ, run over to the cafeteria and bring me another pot of water and some pastries, too. Here, I'd better write it down for you. The note Mr. Curtin handed to SQ had nothing to do with tea or pastries. It read, go at once to the culvert opening on the south shore. Bring Jackson along. If you find no one, scour the sand near the opening for footprints. Hurry. SQ read the note, read it again, glanced up to express his puzzlement, and saw Mr. Curtin lay a finger to his lips. Understanding dawned on him then, and tripping in his great haste, he left the room. Kate's ear had been to the pipe when she heard the splash. She'd barely had time to jerk her head back before the hot water gushed out. Even then, a little splashed onto her neck, and it was all Kate could do to hold in a gasp. Then she heard Mr. Curtin send SQ away, and suspecting a trap, she beat a quick retreat down the culvert to the shore. As she emerged into the night air, Kate spotted two figures, SQ and Jackson, though in the dark she couldn't tell this, burst out from behind the Institute Control Building and race across the plaza for the shore. In moments, they would be upon her. There was nowhere to go but the water. Kate plunged in and dove deep. It was shockingly cold, too cold for sharks, she hoped, for what SQ had said just before Mr. Curtin dumped the water was much on her mind. That butchery business was long ago. Surely, by now, the sharks would be out of the habit of congregating here, she hoped. Anyway, she could hardly return to shore, so in the water, she must stay. Fortunately, Kate was an excellent swimmer. Heading out into the channel, she stayed underwater as long as she could, emerged briefly to gulp air, and dove under again. When at last she surfaced and looked back, she'd put a good distance between herself and the shore, and saw to her relief that she wasn't being pursued. Perhaps she hadn't even been seen. Good. She would just need to swim down the coastline and find a safe, inconspicuous place to sneak around. Kate turned, looked at the water ahead, and gasped. She'd seen what she expected to be the last thing she ever saw. A shape, triangular and black, slicing toward her through the dark water. Fear coursed through her body like an electric shock. She braced herself for the brutal, dagger-like teeth, and in that split second of waiting, managed to wonder if it would be the shark's bite that killed her, or if instead she would be snatched away deep down to drown in a bloody darkness. In the next moment, she saw that the shark fin was only a rock. The fear drained away, but the after effects of panic remained, sharpening Kate's senses. With her heart thudding like bass drums in her ears, she looked around. Jagged rocks pierced the water surface all about her. Amid the murk of night 
and the sloshing of a thousand tiny waves, most of them appeared to be moving. More than a few resembled shark fins. Perhaps a few even were. Good grief, she said, for she had no choice but to swim right through them. She'd have to be careful not to cut herself to ribbons on their sharp edges, and she'd have to hope none of them were actually sharks. <laughs>